0: You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies King Arthur, Legend of the Sword Edition. Ladies and gentlemen, knights and wizards, gather around for an audio adventure into a world of unparalleled wonder and sheer epic scope. Mind bending. Hold on to your headphones. Because in this series, we're diving headfirst into the cinematic marvel that is King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Picture this, a world where the line between myth and reality blurs, where the clash of steel and sorcery ignites the screen, and where one man's journey from the street to the throne will leave you awestruck. This isn't just any tale of valor and chivalry. This is a cinematic symphony of mind-blowing proportions. But wait it gets even more jaw-dropping. Imagine a young Arthur raised on the gritty streets, haunted by the shadows of his past. His journey from an unlikely hero to the prophesied king is a roller coaster of emotions and revelations that'll leave you on the edge of your seat. Join us as we unpack the layers of this cinematic masterpiece, discussing the magic, the action, the emotions, and the sheer cinematic brilliance that make King Arthur legends of the sword a true modern legend in its own right so grab your excalibur polish your armor and journey with us through the realms of magic and might as we celebrate this colossal movie that leaves us in a state of pure cinematic awe this is sandy at the movies where the magic of storytelling meets the spectacle of cinema (laughs) hey everybody Welcome to, welcome to San Diego. Uh, who hurt you? What's that? Who hurt you? Who hurt me? Guy Ritchie, Guy, Guy Ritchie.
1: Are you okay? Are you doing okay, Nathan? Well,
0: I don't know. I don't know. I guess that was kind of a jerky way to start the podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I like this movie. Clearly, right. yeah. No, this has been a long time Are coming. Are you feeling
1: defensive for some reason?
0: Did no. You feel the need to... Get the jump? <laughs>
1: Make a power play at the top of the show because you're feeling a little insecure about your position?
0: I I feel like the ultimate power play is you guys because you're going to wrap yourselves in the blanket of fun and enjoyment and we just like good things that are enjoyable, like that kind of thing. Sounds like a safe place to live. And portray me as a sneering (laughs) Mordred that just wants to watch his Fellini movies or something like that. (laughs) So I feel like I lose, but I thought it would be fun to... All the
1: critics are in your corner. We're the ones that have the uphill battle here.
0: Maybe. I don't know. Hey, guys, there's no battles. I'm not Vortigan. You guys aren't Arthur. This is just about showing people the razzle-dazzle of, to to use the old Camelot language, we're just going to show people the razzle-dazzle of this movie. If people have never heard us talk about this movie before, it has been I think, a contentious subject on this podcast before. Well, anytime
1: Guy Ritchie comes up, this movie comes up. Right. So we did Aladdin and this movie came up. Right. And Guy Ritchie shows up in any number of podcasts just because he fits more of that auteur mold. And so he's a nice contrast to studio productions or Marvel productions or right.
0: things like that. Guy Ritchie is in kind of one of the king of the post-Tarantino indies from the 90s. Him and Danny Boyle and lots of other people, but he's part of that British wave of, hey, we can do fancy stuff with cameras and editing and stuff like that. And We don't have to be beholden to the studio system.
1: Let's bring some things that we've seen in music videos and weird places into this stuff. Let's be creative.
0: Yeah, Ben, well, we'll get into it with baggage, but yeah, maybe one of us will end up as baggage. That happens in some... Guy Ritchie films, let me tell you. You do not want to be part of the seedy London underbelly if you don't want to be fed to pigs or something like that. But, no, I, I like some Guy Ritchie movies. I guess we're just doing baggage, so. Oh, In the past? Sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past
0: comes. Matthew Braddock special. I never look
2: back, darling. It distracts from the now.
0: Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Wait, what? As Simba. <laughs>
1: oh. Matthew Braddock was adult Simba.
2: Forgot
0: that. Matthew Broderick totally. was adult Simba. Jonathan Taylor Thomas was kid Simba. Now that mm. I knew. They wanted some very white people. The white people never to live for their th- African adventure movie. But neither of them sung. Yeah, I think that's probably
1: true. Is Matthew true? Broderick can't sing, but I don't think he sang I thought Jonathan parts. Taylor Thomas sung. No, he definitely did not sing. Uh, okay. I looked this up, actually, uh, one of the last times I watched it, it was. Huh. I think it was, well, shoot, I don't know. I think it might have been a little black girl who sang his parts.
0: That makes sense. He has kind of that energy. Did Matthew Broderick sing in Lion King? Despite often singing in his work, Broderick opted not to perform his own vocals in this film. Toto, lead singer. Oh. In Africa. That's Toto. And actor Jason Weaver were hired to dub their respective singing voices. So two different people did the voice of Simba. There you go. Okay.
1: So Jason Weaver. Yes. This is him. Today,
0: a black guy. Yeah. Well, listen, folks. We're talking about baggage, and we all saw The Lion King, and in the theaters, probably. Yeah. Oh yeah, multiple times in the theaters. I think I only saw it the once in the theaters. I think Aladdin was the first big Disney movie that I saw in the theaters. I did not see it. To, I did not make it to the Little Mermaid either because my parents weren't into it. Or, oh,
2: my mom was so into the Little Mermaid. We saw it a million times in the theaters. In the theater? Okay. Wow. We did. What was your first Disney movie in the theaters, Jake? Was it Little Mermaid?
1: No, it was one of those. A re-release of something? It was a re-release in the 80s. I can't say which. I know I've seen Bambi in the theaters. I know I saw, See, the, the, there were a couple others that I know I saw in theaters at a re-release. I bet if we looked at the re-release schedule from the 80s, we could find it. We could find probably at least what I remember. You know, <laughs> uh, I think I
2: saw that too Now that I now that you say that I re- have a vague memory Of going to the theater To see Bambi
1: I know for sure I saw Bambi And I also huh. remember The Bambi toys And everything for that I re- also remember Oliver and Company
2: I remember seeing that too
1: Both of those Got re-released In the
2: 80s I'm pretty well, sure Oliver and Company those. Was original to 88 Oh was it yeah, So then I would have saw, saw that, that original yeah. Yeah. Okay,
1: yeah Okay I know Bambi for sure
2: I think I actually
0: Great could, Mouse Detective Might have been my first In the theaters Which lines up
1: So I don't think I, I don't remember seeing that one in the theaters, but I definitely grew up with it on VHS.
2: Bambi was 88 as well when it was, had a re-release in 82 and then 88. So I must've seen that in Oliver and Company same year. Bambi. Bambi did? Yeah. Okay. And then I remember Rescuers Down Under, which is nineteen ninety. Oh, yeah. That was awesome. I saw that probably twice. Yeah, I saw that. That was super
1: cool in theaters. Yeah. Yeah. As a kid, the was the a That whole eagle flying oh, stuff. It
2: was crazy. I've
1: not watched since cool. I
0: was a kid, but that has a happy place in my memory. Yeah, you know, exciting. Yeah. More for boys, kind of a Disney movie. That's right. Oh yeah. That and Aladdin were like. The I two. wanted to go back yeah. and see
1: the Rescuers for so long after that. It took me oh, a long time a to bummer. go back and see it, and. Then I discovered why I had yeah. never seen it. I'm <laughs>
0: Bernard. I'm a poorly animated mouse in love with Bianca.
3: There's I remember little, it was
2: a little bit charming. It's a little bit. Well, Bianca and Bernard
1: are charming characters. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's just in that, like, really down gray 70s.
0: <laughs> it's got, like, at the beginning, the little girl is trapped. She throws a bottle into the ocean. And then uh-huh. instead of getting beautiful Disney animation of the bottle going all the way to New York or whatever, we just get still shots. It's like it feels so cheap. Oh, I've
2: forgotten all this. Yeah. It, it's really not good,
0: especially compared to the grandeur and the early CGI and stuff of Down Under. Mm-hmm. And George C. Scott makes everything better. Well, yeah. Joanna! Joanna! Joanna.
1: Yep. One of the best. And he sings. I, that that lives with me. Him singing Home, Home on the Range.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Where the critters are tied up all. in chains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. He's a good bad guy, and he has a great Disney bad guy traumatic death. One of the best, I think. I mean, it's just a fall, but it was, I don't know. It was played really well. It was, early it really was well. an early one for me. It's pretty scary to imagine going over a giant waterfall like that. Like, that's quite a thing to contemplate as a young boy. Anyway.
1: Well, and in theaters, it was all so big and epic feeling. Yeah, uh-huh. the
0: flight with the eagle and everything. Yeah, good yeah. good times, man.
1: I remember getting butterflies in my stomach for it. That's That's what you want when you think of a fun time at the movie theater.
2: Yeah. Man, so many... Carpet ride was that way, too. Yeah, for sure. Good grief. So, so 1989, I didn't realize it was such a watershed year for my theater-going childhood. Little Mermaid? Batman. Cheetah? I didn't get to see Batman theaters, but Cheetah. Come on, guys. Cheetah. No idea what you're talking about. That's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It's about an orphan Cheetah cub that's adopted and raised by an American family, Jake. I'm
0: sure all our listeners know about
2: this. Oh, well, they know it's where s- the phrase uh, Kuna Matata was originated. I didn't know that. For, for know some it, reason, I, I saw that several times in the theaters so or on, on video, at least. And then, "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids," '89. Oh, yeah. That might have been an would, early theater. Experience that movie was for me. great. I don't. Man, that think was that, so I much think fun. I saw that the one theaters. in the theaters oh. in '89.
1: You would have seen "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids" in theaters. Maybe, maybe it I was did. only on
0: VHS in '91 or '90 or whatever. But man, I do remember that as an early because you
1: were the well. I guess you wouldn't have been the oldest at that time.
0: But I would have been. Four or five by that time. Ben would have been six or seven. You would have been... Five. Five. Okay, yeah. In what? Yeah, I guess I would 90? have been four. Yeah, I would have been pretty young. 89? I would have been five. In 90, I would have been
2: five-ish. Have we talked about the Disney movie Shipwrecked before? I'm Loved sorry. Loved like, that movie. Oh, I Never only saw ever it. saw it on VHS, but I watched it over and over and over. I did too. Like a million times. We had a recording off of a So did TV. we. So yeah. did we. I think it chopped off the first five minutes or something. It was one
0: of
1: those. What
2: a great movie Oh man, for yeah. boys. Oh, my goodness. I never saw that movie. But
1: speaking of recordings, we used to, from, we had a huge library of pirated videos growing up, but it wasn't recorded off of TV. We would,
0: (laughs) my dad had a. Get them from Blockbuster and then record them tape to tape.
1: Yeah, it was tape to tape because we had a, all the way back in the 80s, we had a VHS camcorder, like a VHS camcorder, and you could hook the VHS camcorder with an RCA cable up to the VCR. And play, yeah, tape, and just do a tape-to-tape right. straight yep. rip.
0: I think we did some stuff like that. Cool.
1: And so my dad, we would just go rent a movie, and then we'd we'd watch it, and then uh, overnight, dad would rip it straight, straight tape-to-tape rip, and then we'd return it, and we just built our library that way for a dollar a piece mm. or whatever.
0: <laughs> See, I, I did that. My parents would do that. I'm trying to remember what movies these were. We had some movies that ostensibly had bad things, but they had not recorded some of, like, I think we had a James Bond movie or something, but all the sex scenes were, they just kind of skipped. Like, they made their own home censor. Yeah. Well, you
1: could do that with those, like, you could just hit pause. Right. And then record again, and it would just pick right
0: up. It was a beautiful time. The Disney movies came in those white clamshell uh, things.
1: Yeah. I mean, we still got... The nice versions of the movies that we cared about. Right. But, and I don't think my, I think there was sort of a, I could be wrong about this. I just don't think there was much of a culture of guilt or shame about that sort of, it was all new technology. and I don't think people had thought about it as much. Right. I know that that stopped at a certain point and that would be something that probably if my dad heard this or if I talked to him about it, he might be pretty embarrassed or blush at it. I don't think he...
0: I think what happened is Napster happened and everybody was just like, yay, all the music and everything is free for us. And then Hollywood was like, well, we need to make an example of a few people. So they just like destroyed some young lives, just random people that had.
1: But they also forced people to reckon with the reality of copyright and intellectual property.
0: Right. And suddenly everybody understands. And then they did a whole PR campaign. We all probably remember in the early 2000s getting DVDs that would have that stupid little bumper on the beginning. Mm -hmm. you wouldn't steal a coat. You wouldn't steal money, but, you know, dan, 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 which, why would you steal a movie? And, stuff and they
1: like all had that big FBI, blue white on blue FBI thing. Yes. This is a federal offense. The FBI will come knocking at your door for your- Up
0: to $25,000 fine, yeah, that's right. et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> the Helson days of- I, I actually or mostly resent people that have too much nostalgia for that because- now people are collecting VHS, which I just think is ridiculous in the era. Of- the
1: VHS is really stupid to collect. It's not the same as vinyl. People
0: <laughs> no,
1: people act like it is. Vinyl is actually really high def. But
0: there are certain things where I'm like, I get it.
1: It has its own dynamic range and all kinds of sonic qualities. Right, that-
0: vinyl is actually legitimately better. CD was a step down from vinyl. Digital yeah. is mostly a step down. But that is not true for digital movie capture technology. 4K is actually better than Blu-ray is actually better than... I can understand some movies, if you're an exploitation fan or something, I can understand some movies are dumber in high def. Like, you don't always want...
1: Yeah, especially if you have movies where people are shooting their shots and their props and their effects take into account...
0: Right, this is going to be fuzzy. and This is going
1: to be fuzzy. I, I feel bad for certain actresses who shot certain scenes and were told and was true at the time that it would be fuzzy Mm -hmm. and people wouldn't be able to see certain things. It ain't fuzzy anymore. And now it's all crystal clear.
0: Yeah. It's amazing how much more racy like the Roger Moore James Bond movies are now when you turn them on than they were back then because it's, there's just like a lot of stuff that wasn't really designed for uh, huge 72
1: inch screens in 4k.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe it was. Maybe those movies were just always dirtier than we thought. Maybe Because I imagine that the theaters, they were. But it's just, these are PG. You know, these are intended as, they're smutty. I'm not saying they're not, but they are intended for a more general audience. They're not R-rated pictures. But yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Anyway, it's amazing. I mean, amazing in the sense of, what a world, what a world. It's crazy, the things that happen.
2: We were going to do Baggage. Oh, baggage, right? Kind of <laughs> what movie are we talking about? The Lion King. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: It it is the Lion King. It is. I just totally hijacked the whole conversation by commenting on your effect.
0: My effect. Oh, you the, played
1: the baggage clip, and I said Matthew Broderick's best role, and then and we, we were off and running. We had like a twenty-minute. He conversation. didn't sing. Okay. Who else sang? And then we just sort of Disney movies. What was the first Disney movie that you saw in theater? And that's how. It, it's all, it all started with me.
0: Well, if we want to continue to build a millennial audience, it just proves that we should do more 90s stuff. We should do Rescuers Down Under and Great Mouse Detective and stuff like that because people would tune in for those episodes, obviously. We have affection for them, and people would too. I don't know whether either one of those two holds up. I really haven't seen either one since I was a kid. Rescuers or what? Rescuers Down Under or Great Mouse Detective.
1: I haven't seen Rescuers again, but I have seen Great Mouse Detective, and it is exactly what you remember it being. Which is a just fine little Sherlock Holmes fun riff that doesn't belong in the pantheon, yep. but is still pretty cute and fun, and huh. kids like it. I mean I'll tell
0: you, I remember when Ratigan goes full beast mode and is chasing them through oh, the yeah. gears of the clock. That belongs at the pantheon, in my, in my memory at least, of great final, It's pretty epic action chase kind of. His shirt
1: gets ripped open and he's full rat. Yeah. Cool. Yep. You've not seen any of this
2: stuff. I've seen, it's seen some it. really fun Sherlock like Holmes just been riffs, a while. and I saw it as a kid. Got that bat? Yeah, yeah. Big memories. Fidget, Fidget. Yep. Big memories. Actually, I pulled the Radigan
1: song is great and the pulled Rattigan's up a favorite.
2: scene. That scene, the clock tower scene. I pulled it up last year after hearing you talk about it. So, yeah, it was cool. Was it good? Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway, speaking of things that are cool. <laughs>
0: I've certainly cooled off on Guy Ritchie since originally really liking his stuff in the 90s. No, just kidding. Well, actually, that is somewhat true. I've certainly cooled off on his, I'm gonna, it's it's windy timey, I'm wearing a hat kind of British, low budget stuff. Can't really go back to that. All right, folks, I'm sorry. we got to go back in time again. we got to just keep jumping like a Guy Ritchie movie. So, my baggage was Guy Ritchie and with King Arthur Legend of the Sword. I'll start. I did come of age in the 90s. There was an independent film movement in the t- at the time that was really exciting with violent auteurs like Quentin Tarantino leading the charge into doing something more interesting and out there and all that sort of stuff. And I was I am of that generation for sure. And for my money, Guy Ritchie was the most exciting of all of them. So he did these movies, which I suppose we'll probably talk about Lock, stock, and two smoking barrels and Snatch snatch and stuff like that. And boy, did I think that those movies were fun and exciting. And if you've only seen some of his, like Sherlock Holmes or this one, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, it's like all the stylistic little punctuation in this movie. Just imagine that was, there was just a whole movie that was just that and nothing else. It's just like all the razzle-dazzle, as our boy King Arthur says in this movie. But I would have said that those were some of my favorite movies at a certain point in the late 90s, early Oddies. Like, I thought that they were so exciting and fun. I think Snatch was 2000. Yes. That was like the kind of movie that me and my friends would get. And watch. I only,
1: no, because I was just looking to see if there was anything I wasn't thinking of that I've seen.
0: Yeah, I, I we would get that movie all the time and watch it at sleepovers and stuff. I want to be very clear, I do not recommend this movie to our listeners, Snatch in particular, but... I'm just telling you, telling it like it was. I thought it was so exciting and cool. And yeah, and then at a certain point I grew up and, and Guy Ritchie's style is still cool, but those movies are very much just empty exercises and violence and I think, I mean, maybe maybe somebody here will want to argue differently, but I don't think so. I. But then Guy Ritchie sort of got went mainstream, sort of, and he started getting big budgets. To do these, so it was kind of like this weird, like when the kind of kid that grew up actually watching Johnny Depp in all of his movies and then when he hit big with Jack Sparrow, like I was already there for it. And it just had this kind of sad slash good but then increasingly bad feeling of the garage band that you've supported suddenly hits it big. And suddenly they have all the money to do all the production. And it's like, well, I kind of liked it when they were just playing bars. Like, those are the albums I actually like. Like, Jack Sparrow is actually not my Johnny Depp. I'm more of a... Donnie Darko. Donnie, no, not Donnie Darko. Uh, (laughs) I'm more of a Ed Wood kind of a guy. So Guy Ritchie kind of had that for me, where I was like, he's suddenly doing Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr. And he's doing something like this. And he's doing Man from...
2: Uncle. Uncle!
0: And... I'm like, this is weird, like, this independent artist guy is doing this stuff. and But of all those guys, he's been allowed to bring, or he's been asked to bring, or he's wanted to bring his own sensibilities to this stuff much more than a lot of times you'll see these guys come up in music videos or an indie film, and then they get plugged into the Marvel machine or something, and it just becomes generic, and you're like, I guess we hired them to bring a little bit of sparkle to the acting or something like that, but uh, Guy Ritchie, not so. The only time he's really fallen victim to that is in his Disney's Aladdin movie, which is absolutely boring in my humble opinion. But
2: Made over a billion dollars. And made over a
0: billion dollars. It's also one of the only times he's been just straight successful without any caveats. So hey, maybe it pays to be
2: boring. But his earlier stuff was quite successful financially. It was made on a shoestring and made right. a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the independent stuff, and, and and I guess the two Sherlock Holmes movies were successful. They him. were quite successful. But Over had a that, billion together. He had a run of Man from Uncle and this, and maybe and the Covenant know. too. Actually, didn't do well financially. The, I think the biggest bomb, though, is the movie we're going to be talking about today. The biggest money loser.
0: This is just one of the big money losers of all time. Like this is this movie's a big bomb. But, so anyway, that's my guy, Richie Baggage. I really like the second Sherlock Holmes movie. It's just, I don't know, it's just been odd. Hey, this indie guy is doing mainstream stuff and I'm, I don't resent him for that. In fact, I really like it. I think it's cool when people can actually bring real feeling and sensibility in their own style to something more mainstream. That's like my favorite thing in the world. But, it's, but his particular chemical combination makes for odd things that I'm not sure what to do with sometimes. The man from Uncle Ben loves that movie, and I'm just like, I don't get it. I don't don't get it. I'm sorry. Have you, been, have you seen I haven't gone back to it. Talked and, to... And maybe I had a bad just first interaction with it. Maybe I'd love it now. King Arthur Legend of the Sword, spoiler, grew on me a decent amount this time. Although did it grow enough? We'll find out. But my thing about King Arthur Legend of the Sword, which you may have heard on this podcast before, is that I really love King Arthur lore and legends. I don't consider myself to be like a big King Arthur snob or something. I mean, I've read my Mallory, which I suppose most people haven't these days. But I guess this movie on first watch offended me because it's not actually a very good King Arthur movie. It might be a good other thing, but it's not honoring what I find compelling and good and brings me back to the Arthur mythos, like at all. In fact, it's kind of anti-that stuff. It's kind of just the opposite. So I found that very offensive. And really didn't like this movie. And then Ben was like, it's a cool movie. And then Jake was like, I watched it too. It's a cool movie. And then that's where things rested for a couple years. And on this very podcast, sometimes it would come up and they'd be like, it's a great movie. And I'd be like, ah, snarl, hiss. And they'd be like, why are you so angry? And I don't know. I just like good things. And they'd be like, ah, another one of your cheap shots, Nathan. That sort of thing. So (laughs) <laughs>
2: That's how I remember it. Yep. <laughs> it would be like, "Hey, Jake, surf's up, dude!" <laughs> <laughs> Off we'd go to surf again. Yep. <laughs> Razzle right. dazzle. Razzle dazzle. We just like having fun, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like
3: ah. And not a condescending fake Cockney accent. <laughs>
0: uh, I just like quality over here in my pork pie hat. All right, so. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) that's my rambling package with King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Who wants to go next? Ben, why don't you go next?
2: Oh, pick me. Pick me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, let's see. I saw Snatch. That was the first Guy Ritchie thing I saw. I think I saw it with my dad because he thought it was funny. And I thought it was really funny and fun. And I guess... Looking over at the content advisory, it has some nudity in it, which I didn't remember at all, but I guess I'll never go back to it, and it was too foul-mouthed and violent, like Nathan is saying. Anyway, to really go back to, but I do remember having just a lot of fun with it. I think it was just good, like a good black comedy. Now, without a real point at all. Just an exercise in kind of clever plotting and silly comeuppances for dumb, violent characters, but all cleverly done and woven together and with so, so much style... That it really felt like something different. You got to see Brad Pitt be a gypsy. He's really good at it. I mean, the it's criticism of would be... He's good at everything all, he does. All People don't give him enough credit. I know, as an I know. Actor.
0: People do give him enough credit now, don't they? I don't know, probably. I, th- I think they do now, yeah. but yeah. I think the criticism would be all style, no substance. The rejoinder would be the style is the substance for a movie like this. Yeah. It's about the style.
2: And it's about the style. It's about the humor. It's about... I Just don't know. Just being like, on a fun little roller coaster ride. That's right. And there's something right about it. There's something actually for all the violence that didn't feel mean-spirited, if that makes sense. It's not like Tarantino. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine said once about watching Pulp Fiction, which I've seen once and kind of regret seeing it all, ever. But he was like, you're watching this movie, and you're like, man, this movie is so cool. Why don't I own this movie? And then you're like, oh, that's why I don't own this movie. Well, Richie isn't vile. Mm-hmm. Tarantino just is like, I'm going to be vile because I enjoy being vile in movies. Richie's not vile, but he is crass. He's crass all the time. He's crass all the time. And that's very fair. Well, and um, if you don't
0: like crass, he's been more crass than Tarantino. Like Tarantino is much more eloquent, eloquent in the gross provocations, whereas Richie's just like, oh, we're feeding people to the pigs over here in a pork by hat. Nathan's characterization
1: is right. It is a more lowbrow yeah. For that, you know, if you want to think of Tarantino as being the highbrow and Richie as being the lowbrow. Sure. Versions, sides of the same sort of coin of being, what was your word as opposed to crass? Vile. Vile. Vile versus crass. I think
0: the difference, sure. I, I will go with Ben this far that it be, I don't want to make, like, exonerate Richie too much because he is quite vile, violent and, you yeah. know, I, I wouldn't be happy if somebody watched Snatch based on this podcast. No. But – Tarantino wants to one of his things is each movie is going to have at least one scene where I totally cross a line and decide, and bring the audience with me. I want to where degrade they, they never knew they were going to watch this kind of rape or this kind of degraded violence and laugh and enjoy it. And that's like his whole deal is I want I want you to come with me and and then I want you to thank me for bringing you there. Like that's what I do.
2: Now we've all been degraded together, but it was worth it.
0: But it was fun because that's just right. how much of an artist I am. And that's its own kind of twisted that Richie is not. Richie's just more more riffing on like the sort of lowbrow, crimey I
2: of. mean, I almost think Snatch is more like Cohen brothers than Tarantino. I don't really think Richie I don't really think of Richie as Tarantino. I know he rode kind of the wave of indie guys doing stylistic things, but he's just he's quite a different type of Thing. he is like this is a lowbrow funny black comedy about everyone getting their comeuppance and it, you could see if the Coen brothers made it it would be a high class version of the same thing with some kind of dark dramatic moral point Richie's like no I don't have a dark dramatic moral point but boy is it funny to see people who think they're so big get their comeuppance I yeah. think it's funny I think life is funny but like I kind of like you even if you're just crass whereas Tar- Tarantino I'm like you hate me
0: yeah, that's true. I'll go with you there. Richie likes his people and he likes us as an audience. And that's, uh, you could not necessarily say that of the Coens and you, who I <laughs> The Coens. <laughs> who hate us all
2: <laughs> they, and, and are my favorite. They are. They <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I love yeah, the
0: Coens. Yeah. But Tarantino, eh, he just likes himself and he thinks he's cool.
2: Yeah, so. that's right. Anyway, so. All that aside, I guess this is a lot more than baggage, isn't it? But it's fun. What else?
1: Well, Tarantino actually thinks of himself as the successor of everyone. Like yeah. He, the inheritor. He's the guy who took the mantle from Spielberg and Lucas and all the, the movie brats and said, okay, you guys took all the things that you thought were fun as a kid and took it to the next level, and now I'm just going to take it and cross every line I can.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he sees himself as... Yeah, he is cinema. Yeah, 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 yeah. Richie is more like a guy on the street.
1: And there's an argument to be made that he's right, that Tarantino's right, that he really did take the mantle and take things to the next step or the next logical conclusion. Yeah, I mean, the you get the filmmakers, you
0: with. deserve. You can't. We can't be too hard on Tarantino because. Everybody loved him and embraced him and welcomed him into the fold. And mm-hmm. you just, we just can't pretend like he inflicted this on us as a society when we weren't ready for it. No. We paid no. for it. We all thought it was funny. That's right.
1: Incentivized it. Bought more yeah. of it.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. So, so, well. Anyway. I, I just, I liked Snatch. Didn't think much more about it, I don't think. But then came back to Richie at Sherlock Holmes. Not sure what to expect. Not really, not thinking maybe too much about the fact that it was Guy Ritchie but just saw it in theaters and really enjoyed it. It was like, man, that was fun. That had style. That was, he managed to do action things I hadn't quite seen before. He had an, he had a real ear for sound design and and an eye for editing and just a sense of the rhythm of cinema that made the movie super fun. And it was like, it was playing to the cinephile snob in me, which was a little smaller than it is now, but it was still there in me, in my heart. And, And then he was also just making kind of a broad picture that anyone could have fun with if they wanted to. He was getting actually these really... One thing that's weird about him is Sherlock Holmes is this weird, broad action movie that just is made to appeal to everyone, but at the same time, it is crazy attentive to every detail. And you've got Robert Downey and Jude Law playing this very actually subtle kind of characterized banter all the time and just giving a ton of detail to their characters constantly and the whole world is full of this constant attention to visual detail and the action sequences are edited to just an exact standard you can tell and everything about the movie is exact but it's just this big budget big tent silly nothing caper so i i really liked that and i was i appreciated the craftsmanship of the guy even more so in the second movie sherlock a game of shadows Game of Shadows, to my mind,
0: is a masterpiece. I like a five out of five, minus some Stephen Fry. I'm naked and gay. Dumb stuff. Yep. Like there's some really dumb comedy in it, but yeah. In terms of its action, it's like everything you just said for my to my for my money yeah. describes Game of Shadows, which I just think is
2: kind of brilliant. Yeah, it's one of the best adventure movies I've ever seen, minus the Stephen Fry. i should go back to the first one because i think i might like it better now i I, I I couldn't get over the
0: dumbness of the actual for the audience plot lord blackwood is is just
2: like come on guys something a little more literary
0: (laughs) but this is sherlock
2: holmes we're talking about come on but boy is it fun boy is it silly boy is it precise yeah Uh, i mean
0: i liked the whole uh before it was done to death by other things that the whole uh, i'm gonna imagine how i'm gonna beat this guy you know the scene that everybody remembers yeah well
2: it was it was super cool and still if you go back to it it still is really it's well done so anyway from then on i've caught the rest of what he's done basically man from (coughs) uncle caught on video wasn't interested at all for some reason but caught on caught after a theater nobody was interested it didn't do any business it's not a property that anyone remembers all that fondly right and for my money when i go back and watch it i'm like it's dumb that this is not a thing this is more fun than most things. I just want to say, I accept that I am wrong
0: about that one. Humanity has made a decision, and that decision is that the man from UNCLE is good. Everyone who sees it says what Ben says. I just, I missed the boat on it. Literally. So, just like Army
2: Hammer himself in the movie, I missed uh, the boat. Army Hammer. Doesn't he miss a boat? Star in the making. Yeah. I, yeah I, uh,
0: or somebody does. Uh, someone does. Either, Either him guy. or the other guy.
2: Yeah. So King Arthur saw in the theaters, was like, this is great. I didn't know what I was going to get. But I was excited by the trailers for it. And it was like the fantasy movie I had been waiting for. And I tracked completely with it what he was doing. I didn't give a second thought to the fact of the actual King Arthur legends. Just let it go out of my brain. <laughs> and ate my popcorn. Mm-hmm. And was bored, stiff by Aladdin. Saw the last couple of things Richie has done, all of which have bombed. Like Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre, which is a fun, again, Rather crass, Jason Statham action movie that is just silly and fun and has style oozing out of its pores and is clearly like a low budget, kind of fun movie that this guy made with his pals. And then the Covenant, which I loved. I haven't seen the Covenant. The Covenant is like the only solemn thing Richie has ever made. And it I thought it was great. But he's an interesting he's an interesting fish. I wish he would stop bombing and figure out how to market himself or someone would figure out how to market him. Cause man. I don't know how much more cachet he has to even make movies or get people to bankroll them at this point, but he has four upcoming movies. If Aladdin 2 is still being made, which there's rumors it is or it isn't, it's listed. Huh. Maybe it'll make him another billion dollars. And then he has three other movies. Well, okay, two other movies and a TV series. But
0: I feel like he must be a charming guy in the room. Like with, he must be good with the executives because he has gotten a lot of chances even without everything hitting. Obviously, Aladdin yeah. hit big. I would
1: still, if you were an executive looking for magic, wouldn't you still be willing to bet yeah, on him? Take I would. a risk if you had the studio money to do it.
0: Yeah, like I wouldn't bet on his choice of property. Like if he want, if he, I would hire him for Aladdin and then let him go in a way that Disney didn't. But I would not say, oh, you're interested in Man from Uncle. I, I don't trust his taste, in other words. Like, I don't trust i don't trust that his taste would align with an audience's taste. Right. It clearly does not. Right. But give him Sherlock Holmes, sure, that's a good idea. Like, give him something mm-hmm. that, Well, yeah. you
1: could have, he's a guy that you could have, if you were willing to give him enough leash, could have done what you did with James Gunn and given him a property like Guardians of the Galaxy. Nobody cares about these people, and they're sort of like the grungy outcasts of the universe. Right. Right. So if you're talking big budget, like, I could see maybe he's too big to come under the roof of some... Something like that, but if I were a studio exec, I'd roll the dice on anybody who's willing to take the kinds of creative risks and give the attention to detail that he is.
0: Well, sure, and I love the fact that Warner Brothers, poor them, but, well, also, Warner Brothers sucks, so not poor them, but they I love the fact that they spent so much money on this ridiculous <laughs> King Arthur and that they let it be so Guy Ritchie. Like, it, it's not splitting the difference at all. Right. Never yeah. is there a scene that just slows down and isn't doing little time jumps
2: and all that kind of crud. Are we ready for Jake's baggage? Jake sparked one other thought, but... Go ahead. What is it? I lost it, I think. You were saying something about betting on him, continuing to bet on him.
1: Yeah. You said that he's got like four other projects in the works mm-hmm. and... yeah it's too bad he can't make money and i just said yeah you're wondering when people are going to stop or oh that that know, was it. investing in him and i said i just i it. just he's so talented that i think that he's nathan said maybe he's really good in a room yeah and i just think okay that's probably true but also he's just he shows so much talent and so much spark so much razzle dazzle in his movies yeah. that you just you're going to believe the next pitch or you're going to want to believe the next pitch you're going to want to roll the dice I you're going to want to gamble you're going to want to say okay Yeah, this one really could hit big. Like, if you do this
0: right... And that is what King Arthur is. King Arthur is a movie that is designed to either alienate everyone and bomb horribly, which is what it did, or connect wildly. Like, if everyone had been vibing on the wavelength of King Arthur, we'd still be talking about it. It's a whole new fantasy
1: universe. Right.
2: But, I mean, people vibed on it after the fact. Right. It's like after it bombed, people were like, I went to the theater after all, just before it left the theater, and I was like, "This is great! I'll tell other people to see it." It's too late. Yep. Yeah. That's that seems to be what happened. So, what I was going to say is, I think he is good in a room. I've watched a couple of interviews with him. He's just fun. Yeah. It's like you'd like to hang out with this guy. This guy is smart. He's interesting. He has thoughts about movies, and he's he understands his craft, and he's pretty charismatic. Yeah, so, I would imagine that would be so. Yeah, and like Jake said, he is just talented. Like the precision in his movies is really something. That I think he's under- just
1: fun. I think. Anybody who's watched movies as movies and not just shut up and eating their popcorn. Yeah. There are a handful of people that you just look at and say, crazy talent. Mm-hmm. And he's he's got to be one of them in oh, terms yeah. of just living directors. You don't have to like anything that he's done. You don't have to like his style. You just don't have to. You can hate everything he's ever done. I yeah. don't think you can deny he's one of the most talented people
0: out there. Well, and one thing that I love is being able yeah. to say, oh, this is this guy's work. Just based, You can tune into a Stanley Kubrick movie. Stanley Kubrick's a bad example because we would all recognize
1: right. his movies. Right.
0: They're so iconic. Oh, this is The Shining. But being able to tell whose movie it is just by the way it's edited, just by the way it's shot, just by, you, you don't have to know who the characters are, what's going on. You can just say, oh, this is a Ritchie, or this is a, I mean, Wes Anderson is an example, right? right.
2: Well, but also Ritchie's enough of a just sort of craftsman, actually, that he can make The Covenant, which doesn't have his little flares. Right. For the most part. No, it's, it really doesn't. It's like an, uh, what's the right word for this, neoclassical, mm. if you know what I mean. It's just sort of a, it's like, here's how you frame a picture. Here's how you just let guys walk through a scene. But done in a very sort of just classic. Well, I hope he, language way. Uh, the Covenant. I've
0: not seen. I'm sure it's great. I hope he doesn't do more of those. I want Guy Ritchie to. He's be, not.
2: Uh, he's not <laughs> <be> Guy Ritchie. <laughs> he's know. not. Yeah, uh, he has two of his own projects, which he's doing. Both of them have Henry Cavill. One of them is Cavill and Gyllenhaal. So well, that'll be—that's a sell right there, I know. right? Like, well, that's what—that's what you think. <laughs> but no, that's but, not a sell for an audience. Like
0: Robert Downey Jr. is a sell for an audience. Yeah. I mean, that's what Sherlock Holmes well, had—is a star. Joel yeah. Hall's not a
1: star. Yeah, I love him. Well, and then you have Jude Law opposite of Robert Downey Jr. And he carries so much. Yeah, Jude Law's great in that um, movie. He's so much better than Robert Downey Jr. in those movies. <laughs> not to take anything away from Robert Downey Jr., but he's <laughs> so much better.
0: That's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. It's really hard to judge because Robert Downey Jr. was in a symbiotic relationship with Tony Stark at that point, and it's just, his English accent's not that great. But what Robert Downey Jr. brings to that movie, you are getting what you pay for. Yeah, you are. The movie not, probably doesn't work without someone of his char- charisma.
1: But you could have easily have thrown a Benedict Cumberbatch, who was also... Yes. Hitting his moment or, you know, an actual British actor into that spot. But you have to have the charisma and the ability to play the sort of grungy, drugged out version of Sherlock Holmes. Right. That's actually pretty true to Doyle. Yes. Which Downey Jr. was perfect for that. And he was ascending. And Yeah. I'm not, I wasn't trying to take anything away from that. I just think that if you take the anchor point yes. of Jude Law yeah. away and try to fit somebody else into that role that movie could degrade really quickly That's in terms a good of point. audience perception. Well, yeah. I think
0: Jude Law is always the best thing of, th- in anything he's in that includes Captain Marvel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How could it fail to include Captain Marvel, I guess if you follow the logic, but Jude Law is just an amazing actor and he only gets better as he m- moves away from being a pretty boy and into right. like as his hairline recedes and he gets a few wrinkles like he, he becomes that much more compelling on screen. Jude Law is just Dude lost the best. Okay, Jake, your guy baggage?
1: Sherlock Holmes is my entry point to Guy Ritchie, and I love those movies for all the reasons that Ben did a better job than I could of explaining, and probably not as many of the reasons as Ben. But So I love those movies, and I'm trying to think if Legend of the Sword was the next thing that I saw of Ritchie. I think it probably was, and I think it's my favorite, Ritchie. It's mm-hmm. just, I just had a lot of fun with it. I was looking for a fun action adventure story fantasy and scratched all the right itches and I had a lot of fun with it. And I, it's one of those action adventure movies that I find myself coming back to when I want that. I don't want to do Lord of the Rings and I don't want to do Harry Potter and I don't want to do whatever else. And I don't want to go as far as the John Wick or something like that. I find myself, like, I just want to eat some popcorn and watch something fun. This is one of those movies that I've come back to multiple times now. I think I've seen it somewhere between three and five times. Likewise. Um, and so uh, there was that, Aladdin, which I was not nearly as bored by as you guys. Man, I-, I wish it had been richied up more, but I thought it Maybe was just fine. Maybe I'll see fine. it again someday, but I thought man. it was just fine for what it was.
0: I will never see it again, and I will stand against it, and I think <laughs> it's just a travesty. And- <laughs> The amount of de-exotification uh, of the ancient East is just uh, vile and That's terrible. not his fault. It's uh, not his fault, but it still makes for a boring movie. It makes me love the original. That's how much I hate the new Aladdin is I'm like, ah, oh, now I see what's so great about the old Aladdin. It's all the racism. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I wasn't as bored by it as you guys. I wish it was more Richie than it was, but I thought it still had its moments and its color and its fun.
0: Speechless.
1: She Minus want to that speechless. one. Yeah, I hate that song. Aren't you the one know, that know, said you'd
0: like to mute that song?
1: Yes, I do. I do. I don't fast forward it. I mute it. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. And make the kids watch it with, with their on mute. Yes, yeah, so that's my great joke. Yes, the patriarchy. <laughs> score one for the patriarchy. <laughs> and then I went back and watched Snatch after that just because I wanted the Richie Touchstones. And I don't think it was 20 years later as as fun as it would have been. 20 years ago. It was um, such, a, such an of its
0: moment movie. Hard to kind of yeah. go back. Yeah.
1: And then I saw The Covenant. I liked that movie. And the thing I liked least about that movie was Jake Gyllenhaal, actually. And that was, been think I'm wrong.
0: But oh, yeah. I think you're wrong too without having seen the movie.
1: I think Jake Gyllenhaal is a great actor. I just didn't like, well, maybe we'll watch the movie together someday and talk about it. But that'd be cool. Yeah. But I, it was both fun and disappointing to see Richie make a more classical film without his sort of touched, right. his stylistic touch, pulling it away, pulling back. But everything about the movie from a craft perspective was really well done. And you know, it, mm-hmm. there's so few movies, movies today that you watch and you feel like you're watching a movie, right. you're watching cinema, you're watching something that was start to finish crafted shot by shot, scene by scene, camera angles, composition, editing all of Mm. it and that's what Richie's really great for and and if you're I don't know uh, the this watch of Legend of the Sword I wasn't quite in the mood for that level of just sort of fun (laughs) fun action stuff and so I found his constant breakneck barrage of stylistic choices overwhelming and a little obnoxious but it was any movies of a moment, it's of context. And so it's just like, Well, what are you here for? And but when I'm when I'm here for that, I'm really here for it and I really love that movie to scratch that itch. Mm-hmm. Right. Neither one of you minds
0: the
3: declaration of
1: Arthur or the, <laughs> the West uh,
0: civilization. <laughs> but you just wrap yourself in that American flag, you eat your popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of Mom's Ain't my pie. hero. Oh
1: yeah.
2: Be an American. We're <laughs> at least second wife, King Arthur. <laughs> left
1: yeah, it's a British man's take on a British legend and the making of and the question of what is Britain. And mm-hmm. I feel like I can watch that without having too much at stake in it. And personally. No, I mean, I,
0: and I would just say Western <laughs> civilization, but yeah, which I'm a fan of. I like Mona Lisa, uh <laughs> Justine Chapel, King Arthur, stuff like that. Who hurt but you. Uh, <laughs> <Kai Ritchie! laughs> um all right. So what's next? I guess we need a little context. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me you don't. Anybody got twenty minutes on the Princess Bride, 20 minutes on
2: <laughs> Chinatown? Okay, Ben, you got some context for us? Just a little. This movie came out in 2017. It was the first of a planned six-film series, the pitch of the original screenwriter, who's Joby Harold, who's been involved in a lot of different movies. I forget what they even are. It's not... If you looked up this guy's stuff, you would see... What would you see? You would see some things you liked and some things that you didn't like. You would see that he was an exec on, like, John Wick 3, and then... He helped write Transformers Rise of the Beasts and he helped the story of the Flash. And you'd be like, Egh. but he executive produced Edge of Tomorrow. So anyway, he's just just a mixture of stuff. He is a movie guy. Has a company called Safe House Pictures. So anyway, it was going to be a six film series and the pitch was like, hey, this is going to be like a Marvel universe. Like we'll introduce <clears throat> all the characters of the round table and then we'll put them together for a big epic movie like the Avengers did that was kind of the pitch so um but Warner Brothers had been wanting to relaunch a King Arthur property ever since 2004's mega successful Clive Owen and Kira Knightley movie now that's not true I don't even know how successful it was but not successful enough to keep making King Arthur movies with Clive Owen it was an awful movie I've seen bits of it I cannot. I don't think it was a big
0: hit. I don't know why people keep making King Arthur movies like as if they're just – it's a property that people will just be like, oh, King Arthur, I got to go to the theater. They just feel like
2: it is – the studio execs just feel like it is. Just like they've just got to figure out how to mine that gold. You don't have to
0: explain to people who King Arthur is. That's
2: that's a nice thing for a studio exec. But you do have to still explain to them why they should go to the theater. Well, yeah. But they wanted a King Arthur universe. They were thinking in terms of Marvel – Mega bucks. So they were like, they were going to get Brian Singer to remake Excalibur for a while, which would have been, dare I say it, really dull. They were going to, and then they had this script called Arthur and Lancelot, which was going to have two guys who weren't really big stars in the title role. Anyway, that also sounded really lame. Sounded like a, like a, it, I think it was going to be a buddy comedy kind of a thing. But Guy Ritchie had been interested in King Arthur for a while already. He'd had this Script by the guy who wrote Train Spotting. I don't know anything about it, but. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. But so somehow they got connected with him when Warner Brothers did, and they were like, cool, let's roll with you. And I think Richie kind of used, took his pick of whatever ideas had been in these previous pitches, as well as the script he had originally had from Train Spotting Dude. And they just started coming up with their own thing for this six movie universe. And. I, I don't know. It's interesting. Like he had these guys in mind. Charlie Hunnam wasn't one of them, but Hunnam was like, "I want to be in this movie. I want to be in King Arthur. I want to work with Guy Ritchie. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pull every string I can just to get a sit down with Ritchie, hang out with him, and they liked each other. And Ritchie was like, "Okay, fine. Come and read." So Charlie Hunnam came and read, and Guy Ritchie was like, "That was great, but you're really scrawny. Are you sure you can book up?" Because Charlie Hunnam had been doing a season of that. Riker Sons gang drama, Anarchy. Yeah, and he was really scrawny because of drama reasons. He was like, put me in a room with the three other possible leads and I'll, we'll see who comes out. And you pick that guy. He was like, ah. Um. And Gary G was like, whoa, okay. You can be in King Arthur. So that's the, that's the legend of Charlie Hunnam. So Hunnam was in King Arthur and apparently they wanted to get Idris Elba, another sort of, kind of star. But the role went to... to Digimon, how do you say that guy's name? I think it's Jaimon. Jaimon. I could be crazy. Sorry, man. I've been saying your name wrong forever. Jaimon Hunsu. They did try to get Elizabeth Olsen as Guinevere slash the mage, but instead they got French girl, however you pronounce her name, and so they just didn't really have a lot of stars, but they were really excited, and they spent a lot of money making this movie. A lot of... <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> they spent a lot of money making this movie. But I read this story about how they, well, you can find this in an interview with Richie, just to, they were like trying to figure out how to make this movie work the whole time. It sounds like it was just very in process. Like everything they did every day of shooting was like, how do we make this story beat work? Why do I as a filmmaker care about this part? And so Richie says, you can find a record of him saying, our goal, my goal, what I wanted to do, was I would never done a legend type of movie. Like, I, I I, like the mythology. I'm a big fan of Excalibur. I was. And I wanted to make a solemn movie. Like, I wanted to make a movie about a good guy. Like, how do you make an interesting movie about a good guy in his development? That's what I wanted to do. I wanted it to be solemn. And then we kept being like, how do we make this story work? Are we going to do it this way? And as they went, they just improvised and revised until you do not have a solemn movie. Although it has this solemn elements, it's not. It's a, it feels like a caper. Mm-hmm. And that was not Richie's original intention. But they like they did this thing. I don't know if this happens in movies. Nathan, maybe typically. But they did this thing where they had all the cast like read the script. And they just filmed the cast like running around like crazy, playing different characters, grabbing a couple props coming back, just doing all the lines as best they can and filmed a four-hour movie, quote-unquote, mm. just to get people feeling the energy, seeing if it worked. No, that's definitely a thing. That's definitely a thing? Okay, mm-hmm. sounded pretty fun. That's... So, I don't know, that's the making of the movie. Richie said that the score he worked on with Daniel Pemberton for like three years. I watched an interview with him where he's like, yeah, if you can crack the score, you crack the tonality of the movie, you know how it feels, and you can key off of what the score is going to be, which I think is pretty smart. And it just sounds like the way that he talks is like, yeah, I just, I don't know everything ahead of time. I don't plan it all out. I don't plan my, I don't write my flashbacks into the script for sure. Mm -hmm. That's like generates 10 pages of stuff that looks like worthless crud and clutter. People are like, what is this again? So I don't do that anymore. I do that all in post. I kind of spring it on. (laughs) I spring it on the execs. And as I go, I figure out how many things I need to shoot to have enough raw material to pull from to get the kind of thing that would interest me. So he's kind of an intuitive, process filmmaker, but not random. I don't know. It felt like the kind of thing you would expect him to be. So he has a lot of fun, and it sounded like the cast had a lot of fun. Charlie Hunnam, for one, is not happy with how the movie was received and how it did because years later he's like doing interviews where he's like, I want to go back to King Arthur. We did not get the chance to do what we wanted to do we wanted something bigger we wanted something grander there was a piece of miscasting in this movie that made it not work we had to take out a central storyline Presumably cle- the girl I guess clearly he's talking about the girl who was going to be Guinevere who was going to provide the romantic plot line which is not there yeah. and which they so they redid her character and reshot things
0: I think she's fine but some chemistry between yeah. the two of them would Really uh, add a bit of razzle-dazzle to this film.
2: Yeah, it would. As, as it is, you get something atypical that feels cool. Like, here's a female lead, sort of. But the movie's like, no, we're not going to do romance. We don't have to. So it, in that sense, it feels like, I don't know, contrarian or something. But it was just what they had to do once they cast her. And she was not Guinevere. So, And then it lost a lot of money. It lost a lot of money. It lost... What was it, like $150 million or something?
0: Yes, Wikipedia says lost Warner Brothers pictures and Village Roadstowe over $150 million.
2: Yeah, and it had a $175 million budget. It made under $150 million, but then marketing was really cranked up for this movie, so it generated a lot more marketing and distribution costs and did not recoup that. The critics savaged it, which we can talk about, and said it was just a generic, dumb, over cgi loud michael bay ripoff piece of trash that made no sense or a lot of critics said that anyway and then there's a whole like uh, undercurrent of people who are like actually this movie is smart it's made with craft it has a dramatic center it has a th- it even has a theme and we think it's good so but those people did not win at the box office no and this movie sank like a stone, and I think it's random that I saw it. But once I saw it, I went and saw it again in the theater. You needed to see it like 150 million more times. That's right. I needed to have a lot more cash on hand. <laughs> I did what I could. You did what you could. <laughs> 14 bucks. <yeah. laughs> That's right. That was about what I could do. I don't think I
1: saw it. I think I red boxed it, actually. It was just one of those random. Yeah. It's... Man, it was fun in the I theater.
2: I on. All right, that's a that's all I got. 2017, about that. I
1: guess I might not have red boxed it. It's hard for me to put that. To, there's a time. I think that was before streaming then.
0: sort of think,
1: went mainstream or ubiquitous.
2: Yeah, I think that was. I think it was there. Redbox.
0: Yeah, I think we were probably still red boxing. It was probably t- towards the tail of red boxing, but yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the talking points of this movie at the time was, "Hey guys." Spend $90 million on a movie like this. Like, don't spend so much. Make it more of an indie movie. If it, obviously, that's the sensibility you're bringing to it. So tone down the special effects a little bit and uh, maybe tone down s- some of the cast a little bit. But you can still get and Law for that much money. You're just going to lose some oliphants and stuff like that and some snakes, which I like the oliphants and snakes. There are some of the things I like the best about the movie. But also, I, c- I could see a $90 million movie. Version of this movie that would be good. I I I think that's a fair argument for Mm -hmm. people to make. Sure. And then make the sequel for two hundred million after you've built an audience on home video or whatever. That's one way to build a franchise like this. You can't always come
2: out guns blazing. Maybe, guys, what we should do is we should all sign this petition that I found online to make the next (laughs) like a change.org. Yeah, it's a change.org petition. I will sign (laughs) it. I will sign that petition. All right, I'm going to sign it right now. This is happening, not live, but this is happening uh, on mic. On mic, there we go. All right, wow, it's nice to see two guys. We're taking the, action. The social Nathan? justice issues of their time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, David Lazlov, CEO of More There Media. Are Two
2: Change.org petition. There one <laughs> don't make a sequel to. No, <laughs> this is really funny. Oh my! So one of them, <laughs> one of them is directed towards the studios, and it's. Got 11,000 signatures. That's the
1: base, the fate of the King Arthur Legend of the Sword movie franchise on viewer ratings.
2: But the other is directed towards Guy Ritchie and it has 13 signatures. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, cause
1: well, I'm signing the change.org. Are you going
2: to display your name and comment on this petition, Jake? No, I am not. <laughs> <So> people can
0: <laughs> Google Pastor Jake Menzel. And, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Guys, they're not making oh, another King Arthur Legend of the Sword film. I
1: don't care. I'm signing the petition.
0: Sometimes you just have to stand for what you to believe in. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> A little bit like old Ardy himself. Oh, man, that's uh, really funny. I think Vortigern wins. Maybe if you sacrifice a loved one to an octopus witch, then they'll make another King Arthur movie. But I think that's your only shot. All right. Are we waiting on you guys to sign the petition? Have you signed the change.org position? I, I
1: just signed the petition.
2: Have we ever?
0: All right. Let's talk about our point of view on this film. Luke, you're going to find
1: that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view.
2: A new fantastic point of view. Good is a point of view, anyway.
0: You guys love it. You just eat your popcorn. You're sitting there. George Washington is to one side. Abraham Lincoln's to the other. (laughs) (laughs) You're watching the movie. Hey, Blinken, what what do you think I am? Martha Washington's (laughs) made you some popcorn. She brings it in. Grandma (laughs) brings in some apple pie. You just like enjoying things. unlike Ebenezer Scrooge over here. It's John Wayne
1: on one side. It's (laughs) uh, Babe
0: Ruth on the other. Babe Ruth, yep.
2: (laughs) Sir Thomas Mallory on (laughs) the other. (laughs) Sir Thomas Mallory's only... There, because he spinned right out of his grave. Uh, <laughs> All
0: right, I'll get. I'll make my criticism here in a second, but why don't you guys say what you like about this? This. Uh...
1: Oh, so you want the first word and the last word? I'll go first. That's okay. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'm happy to give my point of view.
2: <clears throat>
1: I think it's a perfectly enjoyable, fun origin story to a six film
0: franchise. I know it's a little early, but can I push back? Yeah. Uh, there's not going to be a six picture. So you kind of have to evaluate this.
1: You can see. Yeah, you can say that. But but the movie was made to be an origin story to a, a franchise.
0: But in terms of your enjoyment, you don't you still have to key off of what we got?
1: Yeah. And what, what we got was a setup, which I liked the movie as it was. And I liked it as a I mean, it ends. We're putting together the round table and we're figuring things out. And I'm Arthur now and I'm saying my classic Arthur line about why have enemies when we can have allies, which is the whole unite the kingdoms, right. Unite the world, this is what's coming next kind of
0: round table guys Mm -hmm. kind of movie. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's fair. Part of the excitement of a movie like that is where it leaves you. Yeah. Right. So part of the fun of the movie is where it leaves you. And it leaves you with this is the start of a great adventure. And as a standalone, it's still fun and enjoyable, and that's why I keep coming back to it. But it also leaves you with, like, and there's more to this story that we haven't seen yet, or that's going to go on and to continue. So I think that is taking the movie on its own terms.
2: Yeah, no, I I think that's fair.
0: Ben, your big picture thoughts
2: on this film? This is a lot of fun. I would be lying if I said I didn't. It didn't resonate somewhat emotionally. Mm. Like, it was a it was just it was a fun ride, a fun action picture, but I also cared, and I thought he gave me just enough to care about i guess I'm kind of a sucker for the orphan losing his parents' storyline, especially when I feel like there's he's he's playing fair with me, right, like the character's well conceived of Arthur, and
1: I don't know, and he I, spends the whole movie fighting. With his past and reckoning with what happened between him and his dad and his mom. Yeah. His last memory of them.
2: Yeah, that's right. And
1: that's what he has to overcome in order to kill the villain. And so that's like the final
0: bit.
2: Right. Yeah, I liked the way that the whole movie was crafted around that fight and those memories. And I don't know, felt like it drove some of the emotion home and some of the sense of, hey, if you want to be a man, you have to accept your dad's legacy and not just mourn his death. There's some fairness to that, and there's and that's not the kind of theme or reject whatever the legacy is. Well, right, shirk it. Yeah, that's right. One or one or the other, but I don't know. It it felt more like just this is just actually a movie. This is just a masculine movie about a guy, mm-hmm. and you don't get many of those. Pretty light on feminism, kind of
0: girl boss stuff. Too. I mean,
2: even the mage, the mage just doesn't play like she has any interest in being a guy. She's like her own. Fiend. She's not Kira Knightley from the Clive Owen
0: King Arthur and no, her like battle paint and no. sword stuff. And
2: no, and I so I just appreciated that. I was just like, hey, this movie was made for me, and it was about maybe it's about my daddy issues too, mm-hmm. a little bit. And I just appreciated that very much. So
0: Well, before I go on the attack, I which maybe I won't.
2: Let me I don't think you guys have praised
0: this thing nearly extravagantly enough. The music rocks. The music does rock. I'm a little iffy on some of the, he gets he grabs the sword, like the final stuff, I think maybe the special effects or the conception or something just isn't quite there for me. I don't love some of the big action, like Marvel style action stuff in this. But a lot of the action's really cool. A lot of the, just the Richie of it all is wonderful. It's a really splashy, fun way to tell the story. All the little capery kind of guy in the scene starts to say a sentence and then a guy in this timeline completes the sentence. All the way that stuff's put together, for mm-hmm. my money, I don't get tired of. I think it's really fun. There's a section in the middle of the movie where he has to complete some quest in some psychedelic other dream world. And we're cutting between three different timelines. timelines where he's doing three different Herculean tasks, fighting three different monsters or whatever. All that stuff is super fun. There's some great performances in this movie. Jude Law is a wonderful villain as Vortigern. I just sort of made a face at the fact that we have a villain named Vortigern in this film. But Vortigern,
2: hey, my friend. Vortigern, I'm sorry. Yeah, That's why I made a well face. No, be. I love Vortigern. And the, for- and the performances in general, things feel finely calibrated. Like Richie brings that sense of, I don't know, an improv ensemble or something. Like everyone's actually playing off each other's energy.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of fun little goose fat Bill. I always like seeing that guy show up. Uh, like Jaimon Houston does his like uh, Jaimon Houston, whatever his name is. Yeah. He does his noble black guy thing that he's been doing since at least Gladiator, if not before. But he's good at it. <laughs> I mean, it's just true. hold your head
2: high, dude. Yeah. He, he doesn't do a whole lot of things. Put your chin to the sky. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, maybe he's just not a good actor. I don't know. I've seen him act on a couple of things.
1: He's in the creator, right? I haven't seen that.
2: That's uh, I don't know. He might be, but John David Washington is the main guy in the creator. Yeah, but I think he's also, he's in there too. I, yeah. Yeah. he's in all of this genre stuff. Anybody like anybody wants
0: like a little dignity spiced into their genre piece, they hire him. Yeah, but he's good in Blood Diamond. Uh, you can't have diamonds without the bloodshed. That was the rap song from the credits of Blood Diamond, an Edward Zwick film, a two out of five star film. Edwards, if ever Edward Zwick, Edward Zwick, a two out of five filmmaker. If yeah, ever there no, was kidding. one. Glory. The Last Samurai. Courage Under Fire. He makes okay dad movies that aren't that great and have dumb, bleeding heart, liberal themes. So that's Edward Zick. I'm glad we settled that. We settled him good. Uh Uh-huh, we settled him good. What else is there to praise about this movie? I mean, I already said it, but the score is great. I love the interplay of modern and traditional instrumentation. Daniel Pemberton, Daniel Pemberton. obviously the Spider Verse stuff, awesome. Super talented guy. Yeah, Super he's talented. Just great. There's some nice uh, sort of Arthurian for people who do like Arthur. There's that weird kind of pagan legend kind of stuff at the wisp uh, on the edges of this movie. There's the, a
1: lot of really great visual world building that just sort right. of makes its way yeah, to the, there, there, there the movie scene by scene, symbolic and, things, and yeah, any number of even the artwork in the castle and the backgrounds and certain mm-hmm. bits of set design here right, and there. And, right.
2: Yeah, again, it's that level of detail that Richie brings that you wish he's better at it than Peter Jackson. He's better at making you feel like this is a total world and here's 50 unopened doors. Right. right. But I, I know what's behind them. I've thought about them. But I'm not going to open them for you. Yep. Yeah, he's quite a talented
0: fellow and the movie is made with great talent. And I did not resent any of those things. I did not resent the style. I did, I'm not like, oh, you can't tell a King Arthur movie with this style. No, please tell a King Arthur with this movie with this style. Please tell a King Arthur movie with humor. Please make it into a caper. Like all those things... I want to be very clear because what I don't want is anyone to come to me and say, well, Nathan, you just didn't like it because all. Oh, oh, oh. No, I did like it because all. Oh, if I was going to like it, it would have been because of all, oh, okay? I like those things. I like fun things. And I like when I, I don't need it to be like a boring old King Arthur movie with a John Williams-style classical score with very traditional editing with like mm-hmm. stately heroes saying somber dialogue. I, I don't want... Any of those things. I don't like those things. I, I don't think that I would enjoy a King Arthur movie done that way, done with too much sort of boring pageantry like Dune or something like that. So that is not my complaint. My complaint, I think, boils down to the fact that this is a desecration of Western civilization, as I said. No, my complaint, I think I finally, because this movie, as people have heard on this podcast before, when it's come up, it makes me angry. And I think I finally figured out why watching it for the second and final time. I. There is something that really I do not like about the Guy Ritchie's conception or the screenwriter, whoever's conception of King Arthur, and it is the fact that he is the anti Prince Hal from Henry the Fourth and all those Shakespeare plays. If you'll remember, in those plays, Henry is lowbrowing it with Falstaff and a bunch of people in a brothel and stuff like that, and he's not being the king that he should be. And the whole point of the you know Henry the Fifth is he becomes—Henry the Fourth. dies, and then Henry the Fifth. Hal, has to become the king. And he has to step up, and he has to be his father, and he has to have the dignity, and he has to say goodbye to those brothel friends and hurt Falstaff's feelings by not recognizing him and stuff like that. And it's all sort of very foreign to us, and some of it you may not even agree with. You're like, man, did he really have to treat Falstaff so coldly? Did he really have to do this or that? those But it's playing with who, what does it take to be a king, and who is a king, and what does Shakespeare think a king is, and what should a king should be. And I think that's pretty essential to a King Arthur story. Now, you know, you guys say, they're doing something else here. Okay, fine. They're doing something else. It's a fun movie. And King Arthur's been in the public domain for thousands of years now. King Arthur, they're going to make more King Arthur movies. They can make one that doesn't follow the sensibilities that I like. Okay, fine. But... There is something that really rubs me the wrong way about the whole conception of this movie as you can take the man out of the brothel, but you can't take the brothel out of the man. The idea that Arthur actually doesn't have to really mature past the cool guy that he already is. He needs to deal with his daddy issues. He needs to, like, embrace. But there's nothing that he really needs to leave behind in terms of his brothel caper Guy Ritchie football lad kind of personality in order to become the king in fact the movie makes a point of the fact that he's bringing all of that with him is what makes him great which is very subversive it is intentionally subversive it is the point of this movie it is the take it is guy Ritchie's take you can find interviews and stuff where they're like yeah we wanted to make our kind of king arthur and i don't want to be too heavy-handed on it i don't i'm i am joking i'm making fun of myself when i say it's a desecration of western civilization i shouldn't feel this strongly about it it's totally fine for people to enjoy this movie i want to go on record it's fine for you guys to enjoy this movie but i don't because i really do hate that theme i just i don't like that theme that and then some of it is like i don't like that type of character i don't like like it's like i wouldn't want to hang out with charlie hunnam in this movie he's a bro who always thinks he's right. He's always kind of making fun of everybody. He's got a little bit of bully energy. Like, I wouldn't like him if I went to high school with him. And it's just like the, it's a little bit like a Zack Snyder movie where it's just like Zach, Zack Snyder clearly worships a personality type that I think is bad for humanity and downright dangerous. And this movie has a little bit of that energy where I'm just like, yeah, I can enter into Charlie Hunnam's daddy issues and stuff and feel some emotion, but. Ultimately, I don't like this character. I don't like what the movie is saying about this character. And it's a pretty offensive thing to do with King Arthur. So there. That's my argument. Trying not to make it too heavy-handed, ultimately. but
1: I think those are all fair criticisms. I mean, the movie does make that. The movie wants a King Arthur who is a man of the people and a man of the people by Guy Ritchie or the screenwriter's idea of what a man of the people is. And you have, I think, the real key scene that opens that up or the view of Arthur or the view of Britain is the scene between Jude Law and Charlie Hunnam in the prison. Jude Law's got him. He could just kill him. He's going to try to make an example of him or whatever and stupid Jude Law for not just killing him. But he's going to go in and he's going to sit down with him and sort of expose him and say, look at what you were able to do. You you were nothing. You were a nobody. You were a street urchin in a brothel and you ran a huge, you turned it into a huge enterprise. You became a street king. Imagine what you could have done if the crown had just passed to you the way it should have. It's too bad for you. And it's very much the story of the street king just needs to get put into his proper place and use all his same instincts and intuitions, be a defender of Britain, be a defender of his people, which are the lowest of the low, the brothel people, the prostitutes or whatever. And at least for the purposes of this film, we don't need to see any real transformation. And we'll never get to see if there was any transformation planned or any elevation of him. But very clearly, the whole story of the Vikings is there for the very purpose of saying, oh no, same dude, same guy, same story. The movie opens, we get... As an eye into Charlie Hunnam's kingdom and he's taken down the Vikings for beating up one of the brothel horse. Right, And he's taking his money back and he's cutting off their beard and humiliating them. And then we come to the end. They're actually there because they're making some kind of treaty with Jude Law. And we get to the end and there they are again. And he's like, okay, our way, our terms. And the only growth that we see is that he's willing to deal with them at all instead of just kick them to the curb. But he's willing to deal with them on his terms. Cause it's better to have allies and enemies or whatever the Arthur Line
2: actually there is. There is maybe there's a little more there, the way that he deals with them. It's like you're dealing with you're dealing with England now. And I'm addressing you in a diplomatic and political way. But yeah,
1: I'm not but, just, but I'm that not that, just, that whole point is I am England. Charlie Hunnam is England. And you, the, the whole Arthurian argue, story is the heart. What is the heart of England? Who is England? What is England? What is England's identity?
0: If you want to argue against me, I think the best argument maybe is to say he starts out the movie as the guy that's going to bully the bullies, and then by the end he's become a true egalitarian, a true like I actually want to bring everybody together in a more mature way than I. I'm not just going to beat these Vikings up or I'm going to let them, I'm
1: going to them. let them know that I'm the king. I'm the boss, but then I'm going to set the terms and keep the door open. And, and, also, th- and they're
0: going to bend to my terms. And also if you wanted to argue with me, round table, Nathan, king arthur most famous egalitarian king ever. It's not man of the
1: people is his whole stick and deal.
0: And okay, fair enough, but I still think
2: my point stands. Ben's doing one of those head things like I'm just thinking. Uh, I'm just thinking. Uh, it feels fair. I don't feel bothered by it like you and maybe that's cuz I'm a worse person.
0: Probably. But, I mean, we could we could name, <laughs> I'm sure we could name lots of movies where I just accept this type of person without uh-huh. even thinking about it. Indiana Jones, Fornicator,
2: whatever. Nah, but, he's not becoming a king. That's one of your points, right? Is you're going to depict kingship, but you're not going to give me the character it requires and you're going to undermine it, in fact.
0: Well, it's like at least, so Lord of the Rings is actually an interesting counterpoint. Peter Jackson and his crew are hacks and they cannot conceive of someone with the kind of... Dignity and noblesse oblige that Aragorn actually has in the books. And so they make him into... Or ambition. Yeah, or ambition. And so they they make him into the typical kind of conflicted, I don't know if I actually want this sort of...
1: He's got to be full of sufficient self-doubt for us to trust him as an audience. Right. We don't trust people Mm. who aspire to power. That's the whole conflict here. Uh Sauron aspires to power. If Aragorn's aspiring to power, then we just have two sides of the same coin. And what makes one good or one evil? What makes one evil is aspiring to power. So... Aragorn has to sort of be shirking it, insecure, self-doubting, and that's what makes him worthy. That's what and that's a, that's a very modern storyline. The reason mm-hmm.
0: that you deserve power is because you don't want it. Right. And, but the thing about it is Viggo Mortensen has a sense of internal sort of dignity that he just brings to the role, and he grows right. into a pretty dignified actual king, and he's just a cool action hero kind of silent Strong yeah, I mean, part the, of the
1: great stories about the that movie is all the people talking about him learning swordcraft and being one of the best Hollywood stuntmen stor- swordcraft type dudes. By yeah, the time and coming was in done.
0: incredibly late after they fired somebody else and just becoming almost the de facto leader of the actors. And it's like, it's like Viggo Mortensen just has that. Right, that quality, whether whether Peter Jackson has it or not, is another question. But Vigo Mortensen brings it. It's a, it's a great piece of accidental last minute casting that just makes those movies. And I like Charlie Hunnam just fine, but man, he just doesn't he just doesn't have a lot of that.
2: I, for my money, though, he does. I've always thought he does. I would say another argument might be that Eric Bana does. Eric Bana is the dad. Yes, Eric Bana very much does. But by the end of the movie, you could say Charlie Hunnam has grown towards his dad's dignity. I, I feel that on an intuitive level. Like when I watch the movie, that's the trajectory I follow. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe that doesn't actually happen. But it's there in terms of his own emotional journey towards accepting his dad's legacy.
1: I agree with that. And that's how I've felt about the movie, too. And I don't think... I think that the movie leaves Arthur in... Still something of an embryonic stage as a king. And maybe this is just the point where we disagree on how we approach this film as a standalone or as a kickoff to a franchise hmm. or whatever. But I think that there was room to see what was going to happen. But I also, I think even in the scenario where they make five more of these movies, it's very possible, very likely, that one of the arcs is Arthur still has to can never really let go of that part of himself or never get too far from it. I think that what you end up doing with an with a character arc like that is you have to take Arthur into power and then you have to make sure that he stays connected to his roots, yeah. his street-savvy, man-of-the-people roots. That's, I think, probably just the most natural, obvious way to take a I mean, storyline that you start where you put Arthur in that mm-hmm. position.
0: If you, if you make six of these, then I'm just going to declare without any question that there'd be one where... Arthur has lost his touch with his roots, yeah, and, and it no become question. kind of too cold and austere and authoritarian. And then he has to regain it in order to defeat whoever the villain of the week is. And then there might be one where maybe in the second one, it's like he's become king; everybody respects him, but he's kind of bored and he doesn't really fit in and he doesn't like being there for all the dignified ceremony stuff. And he just wants to go out and hang with his friends, or he, he wants really, to go on a quest. He wants to go on a quest, and he's um, got to
1: find something big enough.
0: And it would be the job of whoever the actual girl is at that point to say, hey, dude, you actually have to be king. But I still think given the way this movie is presented and given what they clearly value about King Arthur, what they never want to actually say is that he needs to grow out of the brothel.
2: Yeah, that, that may be true. But the end of his emotional journey is like, is accepting the responsibility of his dad's legacy. And that does feel different. It always feels different to me.
1: It, if you if I mean it just depends, I think, on how you read it. If uh-huh. you see his clinging to the brothel as denying his dad's legacy, then you see his embracing finally of his dad's legacy as maybe a rejection of the brothel, yet to be seen or yet to be mm. determined. yeah, but I think that it really hinges on how you interpret his resistance mm-hmm. step by step along the way mm-hmm. to his dreams, to the vision why Excalibur is fighting with him, as long as he's clinging to his brothel identity, as long as he's clinging to all of that sort of thing and refusing to reckon with his dad and reckon with his past and reckon with what happened and reckon with who he is, Excalibur won't serve him. Right. That's like the key, like that's the turn that has to happen. For Excalibur to serve him in all of its power and glory and finally overcome and defeat the evil demonic power that slaughtered his dad, he has to embrace his legacy. He has to embrace who he is. He has to reckon with all that stuff, which he resists at every point along the way. So if you tie that resistance to his clinging to his, I just want to go back to the way things were. I just want to be with my chums. I would just want to, okay, fine. We're in this. Okay, fine. You killed my people. Now I want revenge, whatever. Like all along the way at every one of those points, he's still fighting with the sword and the sword's still fighting with him. Right, And so, yeah, just to say the same thing three different ways. Hmm. But I Guy
0: Ritchie, I think, does not see the different. Like, when King Arthur is being a really good and compassionate pimp, that's him accidentally living up to his father's legacy. That's not him rejecting his father's that's legacy. That's right. I and think that's that, what, what Ritchie sees. that's so what I, think you're I right. resist about this movie, and yeah. I think I'm fair to resist.
1: Not, that's the, not, not that's to be
0: morally high-handed hand, high about it, mm-hmm. but it's just like, that's a bad take, Guy Ritchie. That's a really bad take, and yeah. I really don't like it.
1: That's the, the nobility of the line of the Pendragon is the, Arthur's going to stand up for his women.
0: Right. And then they're all played by these waifish, pouty-lipped sort of suicide girl-looking models. And there's just something like not very King Arthur about some of that. Um, I don't mind Arthur growing up in a brothel as a plot point. I think that's just fine, you know. Mm-hmm. But it has to actually feel like this guy should have been king, but instead he's been degraded through no fault of his own and now he has to reclaim it, which is not exactly what they're doing here at least. And mm-hmm. so Yeah. Yeah. That's what I don't like about this movie. And I just don't like Charlie Hunnam that much, I guess. I just, and that's that is where we can agree to disagree without. I just, I, I do not find the essential sort of Guy Ritchie. I, I like Charlie Hunnam fine as an actor, but the, this persona, just kind of the Arthur as a football. Like if if the movies, if the big question is, what if Arthur, King Arthur behaved like a British football hooligan type person? I just do not find that a compelling question that I want the answer to. What if he said razzle-dazzle? I'm just like, I don't care if he says razzle-dazzle. I don't want him to say razzle-dazzle. I just don't like that that way of portraying King Arthur. I think it's kind of stupid. I don't mind everybody talking in Guy Ritchie street talk, but I don't know. There's just, I just don't like this guy very much. I just don't like him. I think that I think maybe that's where we just have to mm-hmm. agree to part ways and I will travel on to the West and. Okay, well, guys, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the plot. What do we do? Why don't we just
3: wait here for a little while? See what happens. Well, guess what? Now this is happening. Will you allow me to explain?
1: Okay. (coughs) Wow. I don't
0: think I've heard that audio drop before. You've heard it once. (laughs) It's been a while. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So we start with the jaw-dropping assault on Camelot. Hold on to your hat. Here comes Uther Pendragon wielding the sword. He jumps onto an elephant. He kills the pagan bad guy. Is that Mordred? That's Mordred, Yeah, that's Mordred. That part's awesome. I think we all agree that part's awesome.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Pretty
0: much the best. I just wish Guy Ritchie was making a Conan the Barbarian movie or something like that. Like He's really good at that kind of stuff. Conan the Barbarian grew up in a brothel and became King Conan. And it's just fine because he's just some pagan idiot. You know what? The other thing that I just don't like personally, and we can say like King Arthur, fine, you don't have to, there's a million King Arthur movies, do what you want. But King Arthur is generally depicted as a Christian king. And this movie just scrubs that right out of it. And I'm not just taking offense at that as a Christian. I'm also taking offense. Like, one of the things I love about King Arthur's stories is civilization sort of pushing the pagan mystical world, the fairy world, into the margins, and then the fairy world kind of creeping in and any time a night... Counterpunching. Counterpunching. And so... King Arthur establishes Camelot, it's this great place, it's the Big Apple of its time, everybody's there, commerce, whatever, and then the knights go on these quests, and they go into these dark woodlands, and then they find little old huts with little old ladies who are doing sinister things. They're, they end up interacting with ghosts and fairies and witches, and it's like all of fairyland is still there and still just like creeping around on the margins, and, and you have these Christians, and it's got kind of that Beowulf. Kind of feeling—it's it's like Grendel is lurking right on the sidelines all the time, but also, yeah. And
1: it's like in a Richie's world, Jesus doesn't even exist, right? This is a different fantasy world altogether. We'd said off mic that if the brothel was next door to a monastery, right, it might have changed things quite a bit.
2: Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. You want like a good guy monk character? I mean, that's you want that kind good of thing—a little thing. Friar Tuck type. And then you can have two, if you want to get your punch in, you can have the evil old decrepit priest who's working with Jude Law, y- using religion to abuse the people. Yeah, but he's actually a satanic mage. Right. That's fine. And then have King Arthur be like, actually we should have real religion that helps the people razzle dazzle, mate. And that, <laughs> that's great. Fine. <laughs> but <laughs> but <laughs> But you but the interplay of Old school paganism and modern Christianity is one of the most fun things about a King Arthur story, I think. Hmm. And so I really miss that here. I like some of the paganism type stuff. The depictions of the just, I don't know, doesn't somebody do shrooms or something? And then we see some wood nymph ladies yeah. or something like that. There's, just, there's some cool sort of pagan world imagery in this movie. But I wish it had its counterpoint in the Christian king. Mm-hmm. which Uther does a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. You get most of the most sort of feeling of that in the opening scene. Yeah, and then his mom dies. You got the title drop. And then Vortigern has taken over. And we have our streetwise King Arthur. And we have a big King Arthur or a Guy Ritchie scene. Montage. Uh, montage kind of thing. Where people are talking over each other and we're cutting between different timelines and illustrating things, and it's all real cute. Did you say this was your first? No, no, Sherlock, it was Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. But this is your first movie that was this because Sherlock Holmes is not, not quite as much. Not no, this no. Crazy. well, this yeah. is this is
2: the most crazy of any
0: of all Guy Ritchie's mainstream movies. This is the most Guy oh, Ritchie yeah. quote unquote. Absolutely. So were you on board for all? Were you like this is awesome? Oh you? yeah, I thought
1: it was cool. Okay, I just thought it was super mm-hmm. fun and. I just, yeah, it's like everything I loved about Sherlock Holmes dialed
0: up. just thought
1: it was super fun.
0: So Vortigan's ruling a tower, or ruling a tower. He's ruling everything. He's got a tower. He's got some really creepy, like, witch mermaids or something. And those are some good bad guys. And then what happens? King Arthur has to, how does King Arthur, what's the inciting incident? Well, in he,
2: he takes on those Vikings. For beating up one of the prostitutes who helped raise him, or whatever, and the Vikings are under the king's protection, uh, and right. that brings that brings trouble down on the head of heads of Arthur and all his buddies, and then he's picked At up. At the
1: same time, Vortigern is building his tower. Once his tower is built, he's going to have supreme power, and he's going to be unstoppable. So the sword reveals itself.
0: That's right.
1: And he's making every man who would be about the age of Arthur within a couple of years come and
2: try to draw the sword try to draw and then, the sword, and then, and then they get, brand. get
1: branded. get branded. Right. And so far Arthur's avoided this, but when the trouble goes down at, at the brothel, he can't avoid it anymore. He gets picked up and he gets sent to go test the
0: sword. And then he draws the sword. He draws Excalibur and Verdigran's like, ah, oh no, it's him. Let's just kill him and prove that this whole thing's a crock and what happens then king arthur the
1: mage and the future knights of the round table will save him
0: yes so he's there and he's like look
1: i'm gonna kill i know who you are i know all about you i know your past i'm gonna kill all your people unless you go out and renounce this stuff and then i'll kill you cleanly and if you don't i'll kill you ugly and i'll kill all the people you love anyway so he has to go take the bullet
3: Which he's about
0: to do, and then he gets rescued. That's right. And then he goes back to their little cave, and they're like, you gotta use the sword, mate. And he's like, you just want me to do some razzle-dazzle with that sword. And I don't want to, because I'm rejecting the call in Campbellian terms. And then they're like, well, we think you should go on a psychedelic mind-vision kind of thing.
2: That might help. So he does. They send him to, like, another realm. The Dark Lands. Yeah, the Dark Lands. Like a parallel it's, it's an island or something like that. But it's an island that's an entrance to like this weird yeah. alternate island or something. This huge, awful place full of giant bats and rats and snakes and wolves. And he has a horrible time. Right. Almost dies. Which is awesome. I'm it's kind of amazing. Totally excited about have all great, this stuff.
1: a great, beautiful fight about whether or not they can send him there in the first place. Right. Because will he survive? And it doesn't matter. He's yeah. either got to be made or broken. <laughs>
0: this movie has never, if you haven't seen it. This movie has never slowed down in the whole time in terms of its no. pace and in terms of its, he's art, we're doing a montage type thing. is just, just
1: driving you forward. Unless you're in the mood for that, you're going to hate it.
2: Right. Like, but w- one thing it does do, this is what Richie talks about. He was like, man, this movie was over three hours or three and a half hours, and we had to figure out how to condense more storytelling and do a shorter time. And so I did my thing. Because mm-hmm. this lets me actually tell a lot more context and give you more information without boring you. Right, just cut, four cut, hours, cut, just cut, 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 cut and cut. and feed, cut the past into the present. Yeah, and that lets you cut give, and splice, cut and splice. It lets you spice, give context undercut. without making you wait through wade through fifteen minutes of context.
0: I, I do understand people that just sort of reject this because it does what it threatens to do, and this isn't a criticism. This is just an observation. It threatens to sort of, for a certain kind of viewer, I think it can remove you, make you feel removed from what's going on. Because we're never actually settling into a scene, or we're rarely actually settling into a scene and just hanging out there with the characters and sort of becoming the characters. Instead, we're standing back at one level removed and sort of watching King, uh, Jigai Ritchie tell us the story, which is very exciting if you like that kind of thing. But it does sort of, it's like you don't have the feeling of I'm just wandering through the dark lands with Arthur and I wonder what's going to happen. And oh no, now it's happening. Well, one
1: of the things that is both cool and maybe frustrating to people about a movie like this is that any number of movies actually give you time and space to imagine things about the character, to fill in your own gaps, to fill out your own backstory, to sort of emotionally enter into what he must be feeling here or there. And Richie's done all of his imagining, all of that imagining for you, and is just going to sort of like force feed it to you as you go. And there are lots of things to spark your imagination along the way. That's not what I'm saying. It's just that he's telling you the story. Mm. And so even if you have one of the things that people, you know, as much as people hate on exposition dumps, one of the nice things about a well done exposition dump is that it lets, it lets you imagine what that would have been or would have been like. It lets you sort of create, take the tools that you see in the film and create your own visual for what it must've been like. He's not going to leave that much (laughs) on the table, which makes it also really fun and dense and,
0: yeah, no, it's I, I like cool. I like that element of it, and we get many many movies where you can be like, oh, we're in the darklands. When's is a creature going to attack? I don't know. This is not that movie. That's okay. It's doing something mm-hmm. else, yep. and it slows
2: down for the big Vortigern fight it, at the end. It slows down. It there are actually a number of places in the movie where it does just slow down, and you have some calm more than you might remember, because the other the driving, propulsive editing, soundtrack, narrative sticks out more. But there's a number of places where it's just like. This is a very quiet scene. Two characters are just talking and hanging out,
1: or he's just going to go off by himself and yep. try to ditch the sword and yep, run run from the call. And mm-hmm. you're going to live in that emotion and everything that precipitated it, and where that right. puts his character at this particular point in time and positions him for what comes
0: next. Mm-hmm. So we get through the darklands, and then we have like our big central set piece where they're going to assassinate Vortigern. Is that what they're doing? Yeah. And then yeah. Goose Fat Bill, in one of those typical clumsy moves that characters never have to pay any price for in every single movie like this, screws up everything, gets many people killed, and but he wanted to kill that one guy. I guess that is a minor criticism of the movie because I do think that's a dumb trope. But whatever, or at least it should be like Goose Fat Bill, you're fired. Like you suck. You got us all killed. But whatever. He wanted to kill that one guy, and that guy needed killing, and he killed him. So, hooray! Pretty fun scene. It's a fun scene. They run. Uh, that's I'm yeah. with all the action stuff for that. It's pretty cool when Arthur finally is like, I'm going to use
2: Excalibur! And, and then he wipes out a bunch of guys. Wipes out a bunch guy of guys. But Guy like, i got to save the cool stuff, so I'm barely going to let you see what's happening. Yeah. But
0: it's cool.
1: But it then... Cool. Part of the fun of that is he mostly gives it to you from Arthur's perspective, which is he's in some kind of trance, right more or less, and then he wakes up and all the guys are dead, and everybody's looking right. at him like what did what just <laughs> happened? what did you just you just
2: yeah it's super fun <laughs> it's really neat it's I really super like that. fun. you just get one little moment, he like passes s- out or something yeah, yeah, well, you get that one little moment of slow motion where he's just like cutting through swords and shields, ching ching. Again, sound design and soundtrack for the win. Yep, for sure. And then I, Arthur's going to
0: really try and reject the call after this, right? He's like, yeah. oh, I got my friends killed. That wasn't very razzle dazzle at all. And he's like, the opposite of razzle dazzle, mates. And he, he throws the sword away. And then Lady the is like, 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 too, he's too bad, dude. Sh- Here's your short sword, mate. And throws
1: <laughs> This <laughs> is a fair <laughs> purpose. This <laughs> is where you get to say things like watery tart
0: and, yep. uh, <laughs> and things I can't <laughs> repeat on the podcast. <laughs> He gets the sword back, and then they plan their final assaults on Vortigans. Uh, and basically what it involves is a big uh, ex mockery and a snake. That they probably should have busted out a lot earlier. <laughs> 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 but that's fine. I, for, I forgive the movie that. Or it
2: doesn't need forgiving. It's just like, hey. You know, Arthur wasn't willing earlier. It to bust matter. out the snake? He wasn't willing to use Excalibur.
0: But shouldn't we have had a scene where Suicide Girl was like, hey, I can turn into a snake.
2: Like, she, she has sorry. to summon she, a the giant whole, snake.
1: In in the whole thing is everything revolves around not this not killing Vortigan, but the ascension of the one true king. That's and right. so everything has to be about it. It has to be Arthur who does it. He has to ascend. He has to ascend the throne. Excalibur has to be wielded by the pin dragon. Like it's the mythos of the movie supports them holding back the snake. It has to be Arthur.
0: Okay, fair enough. Maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention. You guys have both seen this movie five plus times. I've seen it (laughs) twice. (laughs) Both both times with a chip on my shoulder. You guys have had shoulders free of chips. So then we, uh, she becomes Suicide Girl, becomes a snake and eats. She just summons a snake. Summons a snake. Okay. Well, she the snake eats the, the vile henchman jerk guy. Yeah. But Vortigern escapes the snake. The minute that
1: the snake shows up, and he's got, and Arthur's got an Excalibur, is
0: the minute he knows he's got to go back to the octopus, yeah, which, and so he's like, ah, I'm gonna have to, my, I've got this Maxim model that's my daughter, and I'm gonna have to kill her, and he does, and she dies, and then he becomes a demon video game knight, and then King Arthur has his sword. We've heard legends about it, and...
2: (laughs) This is a really fun (laughs) recounting of the plot. I'm sure people will want to see it after this. Hey, if
0: they like entertainment, they will. If they just like relaxing and enjoying a movie, then they will. So they... Then King Arthur, like, he becomes one with the sword, we do get to see him take out like a, take out a
2: platoon of platoon knights or whatever.
0: For my money. I don't know whether it's Richie's conception failing or the budget failing or something. That's not as cool or a little marvel or something. I don't know. Ben, you want to defend
2: that? I'll defend it because it's, yeah, the CG isn't there for it. I'll say that. But I don't care because it's uh, his conception is there. It's like, eh, I'm going to do this thing where you're in Arthur's perspective and it's like things are speeding up or going slow in the way that he would perceive them as someone holding Excalibur, and I think that's fun. Again, there's enough there's enough intelligence in the conception of it that even though it looks like a video game, I'm there for it, basically. I'm like, this is a cool idea, like, I'm with it, this is fun, and you're really only gonna give me about 60 seconds of it anyway, but I don't want any more. Like, you gave me what I wanted. That's how I feel about that, it's like.
1: Yeah, I, like, it's, it's not just blown up, glowy things.
2: No, it's not. It's got some cool choreography. It's got some stuff going on. Just like You're just with Charlie Hunnam thinking, man, what would it feel like? That would be cool. I caught this arrow. But would yeah, feel anyway. like being high. Right? <laughs> Something like that. And playing a video game at the yeah, same time yeah, yeah, and yeah, feeling yeah. like
1: everything was going your way.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Once you get to the uh, confrontation with Vortiger. And I or at
1: f- the best, it'd feel like the flow state that you entered into that one time on the basketball court. Okay, or- sure, sure, sure.
2: Something like that. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. And I like that. I get what Richie's going for. I get what he's going
0: for. I don't think he quite gets nails it. I think Zack Snyder did, that, did those kinds of speed ramping things so much better that it's just hard to go back. Not that I'm a huge deck Snyder defender, but, you know, we've seen the superhero speed ramping thing now a bunch, and it's been done a lot better than that. But anyway, Jude Law has sacrificed his Maxim model daughter, all the women are basically Maxim models in this. Well, no, they're too. The wayfished.
2: prostitutes actually aren't. No, yeah, the, no. the prostitutes are more just classic, pretty, but sort of kind my, of. My, they actually, I just don't I think you're think remembering so. them right. They're more like not that healthy, thirty somethings or Is forty something. Is it like his, his?
0: the main one like?
2: The no, one? she's not real. I mean, no, they all look like.
1: Actually, I don't. I don't think of anybody in this movie as being presented in a particularly sexually attractive way. You could argue for the mage. The mage, maybe the most, but in a waifish sort of way.
0: Well, I clearly, from the things I've been saying,
2: disagree with that. But that's okay. We can still be... There there are some hot girls in the movie. I don't think they were
0: overly sexualized in like a sort of Michael Bay kind of gross way. I just thought that (laughs) Richie obviously likes women with really thin waists and pouty lips, big sort of pouty lips, and Mm -hmm. there's just a lot... Brunettes kind of... There's just, just a type. It's just kind of funny, like, well... Either our casting director or huh. our director proper had a kind of woman that they thought is hot, and we have a lot of them. But I think that all women are beautiful, and I thought that the prostitutes were pretty, too. You guys can have your own opinion on that. But Jude... <laughs> All right, so uh, Jude Law becomes the Demon Knight, and Arthur is like, oh, and they fight in the octopus tower, and it's pretty cool. Love it! Fire versus ice kind of feeling, or fire versus blue versus red kind of feeling. Pretty cool fantasy fight. And then Arthur like has the final flashback, and he accepts the mantle of Pendragon and deals with his daddy issues. And how does he? Does he just stab
2: Jude Law to death, or does he have like a? Yeah, well, they have another long part of the fight where he disarms him and then stabs him. I feel like we haven't spent enough time talking about how awesome Jude Law is
0: in this movie. Jude Law like, is, is great in this movie. He does like the whole yeah. sort of Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator, decadent, effeminate, bad guy.
1: But with some real dignity and yes. some real threat. Yes. Where the Joaquin Phoenix character, you end up wondering.
0: like, Why Why is this guy Emperor? Why? How did anybody how did, take him seriously? Why didn't
1: they supplant him right away? Jude Law is
0: scary. Right, yeah. Jude Law you wouldn't want to mess with.
3: No.
0: But Arthur defeats him, and then he's like, hey, Vikings.
1: And his potency extends beyond his, he's got his magic mage stuff and his ability to turn into the demon knight or whatever, but he's also just, he put anybody in his place just with a word or look.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he's good. He's very credible as a villain, which sounds like damning with faint praise, but how many of these villain types are just like, eh, I wouldn't actually serve that guy. But, yeah, no, Vertigo's scary, and you get it.
2: And um, his relationship with his henchmen and servants makes him not just like a oh, scary villain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like no, he's just he's also a guy. Right. Sometimes the servants are like, you better be careful what you're uh, doing.
0: One thing that lives in my head: rent free. Since that's the thing that we all say now, I never stop thinking. I hate Twitter, but anyway, the Roger Ebert wrote in his review of Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. He's talking about Derek, Derek Jacobi playing Claudius, the scheming evil uncle of Hamlet. And he says, I've seen Hamlet in so many productions my whole life, and Claudius always just feels like a villain. But Derek Jacobi plays him as a king, like a guy that people would want to be their king. And he says that's so smart because you actually can't believe that any of these guys would ever read to anyone except for as a villain. But actually, regicide happens all the time and throughout history. And then the next guy becomes king and reigns for years and years Mm -hmm. and years. And you have to believe he must have had some kind, even if he was a murderer, even if he was a scumbag, he must have had some kind of quality that made people follow him. He had leadership. right?
1: And part of that leadership is he was convinced that he would do a better job. Yeah, It wasn't just a lust for power with a lot of these people. So I mean, some of it, that was part of it, but that lust for power was also connected and maybe they were horrible narcissists, but they actually believed they were worthy of the job right and that they could handle the job and they could do a better job than anybody else could and for the sake of their own greed or power maybe but also maybe on some level for the good of the kingdom they yeah. thought
0: they right. believe in somebody like they that, believed at least in tells themselves, themselves like yeah the, no, good that the kingdom was gonna be better under me I'm
1: not no, nobody it's such a dumb conceit to think that people are just like what I really just the kind of people with the potency to actually kill the king and take his place are the kind of people who are just dumb, impotent losers who are just like, I want power. And so they're able to like pull this off and attain it and hold on to it. You don't, you can't, the world's full of losers. Right. Who are just like, impotent losers mm-hmm. who are like, I want power. And if that guy pulls off an assassination attempt.
2: He gets assassinated. He
1: just gets murdered. Yeah. I mean, like, see, they kill the, the crap out of Israel. Israel. Yeah, I was just thinking of the Book of Kings. Northern power. Israel, yeah, yeah, yeah. Northern Kingdom, yeah. They just kill the crap out of him right Mm -hmm. away. He does not survive. The guys that survive actually have some kind of vision and leadership where they're at least able to convince the people around them that they're the superior person for the job and the kingdom's in better hands. And
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess for the purposes Mm -hmm. of pure myth-making in an 80-minute Lion movie, I like the idea of Scar... Scar had one move, which was he figured out he schemed and killed Mufasa, but then he was going to mismanage the Pride Lands such that they became Mordor within a couple of years and all the hurt. That is kind of fun. But it seems like that's the default for a lot of these things. Yeah. Is, yeah. And it's actually much more interesting to say, well, what would it be like? What makes this guy a compelling leader? Why would somebody want to listen to him? How did he organize mm. all these people? What do people like about him?
1: Mm-hmm. But we can't do that with anybody who has any real potency or power in history. It's like that new Napoleon movie, which oh, yeah. I've not seen, but you read about it, and it's just like, oh, the real conceit that we had going into that movie, that Roland Emmerich, was it Roland Emmerich? No, uh, no, no. Uh, Ridley Scott. Ridley, Ridley Scott, Scott <laughs> yeah. sorry. I don't know why I pulled <laughs> that. We'll Napoleon. Our... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see my, it now. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> well, anyhow, the conceit that Ridley Scott had is he's just this impotent incel type. A true little man. It's like, dude, have you read anything about Napoleon and his ability to inspire people? Like, you don't conquer all of Europe because you're just a bedroom incel who can't get it up with his woman.
0: Well, and even about somebody like Hitler, it's just, it's not an interesting question to ask. If you're going to make a Hitler movie, you need to ask the question how did he inspire all these people to go crazy and be evil and start concentration camps? What was. What kind of juice did this guy have? That's the question. It's not just like- which is you read
1: you read Spielberg or watch Spielberg talk about the making of Schindler's List and his absolute insistence on making everybody people mm-hmm. and not leaning too hard into Ray finds Ray finds is a villain, but he's not going to play as a villain. He's going to play as a man, right? With his infirmities, with his weaknesses, with whatever, and you all that. So, and you sort of like play it straight. Give the people the potency they have, and take, and not what they don't have, and then you let the audience decide. And that's the way that you have to deal with these sorts of characters if you have any kind of integrity or honesty about them. And that's the reason why it's actually dicey and dangerous to play a, an actual Hitler biopic, mm-hmm. because he's really it takes a really compelling, charismatic person to take over a whole nation and lead it into a, a worldwide conquest and slaughter millions of people in the process.
0: Yeah. Well, I think everybody, when they come of age, should watch at least a little bit of footage from the Lenny Ruffenstahl Nazi documentaries. I forget what they're called, but the famous documentaries that were made by Nazi propagandists, Mm -hmm. you know, of the Berlin Olympics and stuff like that. Triumph of the Will is one of them. You just see Hitler smiling and kissing babies and hanging out with women and children and pulling up in his car and being treated as a hero and kind of getting the red carpet treatment. And it's really helpful, I think. You know you don't have to, like, sit through two hours of that. And certainly if you're tempted to read Mein Kampf and be a neo-Nazi, then just leave it alone. But it is helpful to remember he's not just the angry screaming guy screaming into a microphone like Satan. It's like, oh, yeah, no, people, people liked this guy. I might have liked this guy. I mean, that's the damning thing that nobody wants to deal with anymore is I might have been a Nazi. Nobody wants to admit that I might have been a plantation owner. Like nobody wants to like deal with that. So we just caricature these people. But not Jude Law, (laughs) not Vortigern. We're not going to characterize the great historical figure. He's a very plausible king. So anyway, Arthur defeats him. He makes peace with the Vikings. He ushers in a new reign. Sets up King Arthur II, and. I actually remembered, I think I made up a memory of the movie ending with more of a little like, sir, the next thing you should do is seek out this fellow Merlin, or just like something Mm -hmm. like, you know, like what a Marvel movie would do, introduce Lancelot or Guinevere or something, do a real, Mm -hmm. quick Arthur, we've got to meet Sir Percival. That'd be a good hook. (laughs) Everybody's favorite. Everybody's favorite. (laughs) Good old Sir Percy. (laughs) Yeah, Sir Percival. By the way, there's this holy grail. Whatever. Uh, but no, it doesn't. This is it's a pretty well designed for all our argument about the sequels. It's a pretty well designed standalone, and then it ends. Ben, final thoughts on King Arthur: Legend of the Sword? No final thoughts. How many swords, legendary swords, mm. out of a fifteen? Do you give this film?
2: Oh, thirteen. Thirteen. I'll we'll give it thirteen. 13, 14, I'll give it 14. 14. There you go.
0: All right, Jake, same question? Same answer. Same answer. I'll give it 7.
2: 50% out of 100.
0: Yeah, it gets 7 for the style. It loses 7 for the...
1: Assault on Western Civilization. Assault on Western
0: Civilization. Yeah, the fact that Guy Ritchie urinated on the Mona Lisa. (laughs) I had to dock it some swords for that. But (laughs) beyond that, great film. There is a lot that I like about Man, it. Then
1: I don't care about the Mona Lisa. Do you care about the Mona Lisa?
0: What's that again? The Mona what? <laughs> <laughs>
2: the Mona Whatsa? Oh, uh, it's that painting that's all dude those, burned all those... in the glass onion. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh okay. yeah. That wasn't a very good painting. I'm glad they burned it's it. A bunch of colonizers. Colonizers.
0: That's... Well, King Arthur doesn't like to colonize. He likes to hang out with his buddies. He's a good guy. Uh all right. Folks, thanks for listening. Support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. Until next time. Razzle dazzle. Razzle dazzle.